Welcome to the Cumberland School of Law Research Radio, sharing stories about why faculty write what they write in legal scholarship. Hi, this is Blake Hudson, Dean of the Cumberland School of Law. Today I'm here with Professor Tim McFarland to talk about his recent work in the field of copyright law. Tim, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Blake. Glad to be here. So you teach and write about copyright, which is a subject that's typically grouped under the broader term intellectual property, or IP. Can you first tell us a bit more about how you came to the field of IP? Certainly. So before I began teaching, I was a litigator, helping people navigate legal disputes. And my favorite part was when that work touched on things like art, advertising, and inventions, which is much of what intellectual property is about. Copyright, trademark, patent, and trade secrets are all rights that the law treats as a form of property to help organize, promote, and protect the output of human intellect. Ah, I see what you did there. Property in intellect equals intellectual property. Nice. So what in particular drew you into teaching and writing about it? Well, my particular favorite is copyright, which protects things like books, movies, and music. For instance, say a bunch of musicians get together to record a song then we pay to listen to that song on our favorite streaming service. At a basic level, copyright, along with contract law, which I also teach, helps us figure out who gets money for that. The songwriters, the musicians, the streaming service, and how much money. And if it becomes a hit song, who will continue earning those profits? But it's about more than money, too. Copyright law determines who is an author, and that recognition matters. Written in My Soul is the name of a great book of interviews with songwriters, and that title to me says it all. We could just as easily sub in soul for intellect when we're talking about what these rights can mean to people. Ah, soul law. Sounds like a jazzy number one hit song in the making. Now, I understand you're currently working on a project that digs into the part of that part of copyright law, namely who gets credit as an author and how it impacts our culture. That's right. I've been writing on authorship and copyright for a while now, and a little over a year ago, I came across the history of a person named Mary Ann Cord and how she told a story to Mark Twain about the tragic and astounding things she experienced while enslaved. Twain wrote it down and published it under the title, A True Story Repeated Word for Word as I Heard It, with credit and the money going to him alone. Since then, I've been studying, speaking, and writing about whether Cord should have had at least some of that credit and compensation. The core of it is whether Marianne Cord was an author in that situation, not just Mark Twain. Well, Mark Twain is a huge part of our cultural history, that's for sure, both here in the U.S. and around the world. But is this just about history or their present-day implications as well? I do think it's both. The best history hopefully teaches us not just about where we've been, but also where we're headed, and that's what I'm aiming for here. The first aspect of that is the meaning of authorship itself. Many courts and scholars view authorship as requiring an intent to own your work. Basically, you have to want a copyright in order to get one. Now, if that is the law, then someone like Marianne Cord likely isn't an author, because she likely didn't view her words as property. To me, though, this isn't the best rule. The law should be, authorship is as it does. What do you mean by that, and how does that play out with Mary Ann Cord's situation? Well, Twain wrote in his notebook about how the distinctive way in which Cord told her story to him made it, quote, 
curiously strong piece of literary work, unquote. That's why he wrote it down and published it. Twain recognized that it was a work of authorship, regardless of whether Cord did. Now, other people around that time, for instance, the person who heard Solomon Northup's story about his enslavement, wrote down the stories they heard, but unlike Twain, they credited the storyteller as the author. That's why the authorship of the book, 12 Years a Slave, which was recently adapted into an Oscar-winning film, was and is credited to Northup, not to the person who wrote down Northup's words. If someone is profiting from Northup's or Cord's creative expression, Northup and Cord shouldn't be shut out from those profits. Can you give an example of how that situation might play out today? Sure. So going back to the context of musical collaboration, let's say you have three musicians recording a song. Two of them may not realize that they're creating something covered by copyright. If copyright requires that realization, then the law has just allowed one person to take credit and money that flows from the creativity of three. I think there's an inherent unfairness and inequality in that result, and I'd argue that it risks sowing a larger distrust in the law's ability to organize, promote, and protect human creativity, which again, is what intellectual property is supposed to be about. And to me, that's a great example of how copyright law covers many areas of creativity. The same law that applies to Twain's writings also applies to musicians' recordings. That's exactly right. And it shows how our views about authorship and court situation have ramifications across not just time, but across different forms of creativity as well. You mentioned time. Can we really figure out what happened back then and fairly judge how the law applies? That is a thorny and fascinating issue. On the one hand, we can't summon Cord or Twain to testify today about what happened. But on the other hand, Twain's life has been meticulously documented. For instance, there's an enormous work called Twain Day by Day, and it's on the web now. You can Google it. So there's a lot of evidence at our disposal, including the numerous times Twain admitted how he copied Cord's story exactly how she told it. Further, the evidence strongly suggests that Twain did not ask Cord's permission to write or publish her words but we can't know for sure. But for sure isn't the standard in copyright law or in civil cases generally. The typical standard is more likely than not, as opposed to the beyond a reasonable doubt standard in criminal cases. So could there be a court case on this today? Yes, but again, it's interesting and complicated. If a descendant of Cords would come forward today, there's potentially a claim that would be triggered by her story's continued publication particularly by the Atlantic Monthly, which was the first place Twain published it and which still features the story on its website today. The case would be fairly unique in that it would be based on a common law copyright claim on the theory that Cord likely never authorized Twain to write or publish her words. But it would also connect to a growing number of what I call cold case copyright infringement claims. A recent 43-year-old claim against Led Zeppelin's song, Stairway to Heaven, is a prominent example of those. How about connections beyond copyright law? Yes, I'm, I'm also writing about how this situation compares and contrasts with efforts to address long-standing wrongs in other areas of law, including a current claim against Harvard for refusing to turn over photographs of two enslaved persons to a descendant of theirs, as well as an ongoing public nuisance case by the survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Well, speaking of those broader connections, in our previous episode, Professor Alyssa DeRusso mentioned how the two of you have been co-authored on an essay on this topic. 
Yes, Professor DeRusso has been a great collaborator, and we're riding on what Court's case can teach us about how issues like this affect the transfer of wealth across generations. Put bluntly, Twain and his descendants made money off Cord's story. Cord and her descendants did not. How can the law address that issue, both looking back and looking forward to future cases? Wow, there's so many different threads of research going on in this one topic area. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and discuss it all. I'll be excited to see this analysis in print. For our listeners, look for Alyssa and Tim's essay in the next issue of the American College of Trusts and Estate Council Law Journal. And be on the lookout for the rest of Tim's work on this project and two upcoming articles. The first, published in the Journal of Copyright Society of the USA, and the second in the Wisconsin Law Review. Great talking with you, Tim. Same here, Blake. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Cumberland School of Law Research Radio. Join us next time for more interesting backstories on legal scholarship.